My name is Jack Buckley. I'm the program director at UCLA Medical Center for the residency program. And in addition, I'm the director of our head and neck anesthesia team. And today I'm gonna to be interviewing Dr. Laura Cavalloni on behalf of the Society of Head and Neck Anesthesia. And today we're gonna to be discussing sedation strategies for awake intubations. So Dr. Cavalloni, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll get started. Hi, Dr. Buckley. Thank you for interviewing me. Uh, I am an associate professor of anesthesiology and director of ENT anesthesia in the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care at the University of Chicago. My main professional interests are in difficult airway management in anesthesia for head and neck surgery and in education. Throughout my career, I've contributed to the development of uh, curricula for anesthesiology and otolaryngology residency programs with a special focus on airway management. And I have taught airway management techniques to residents and to other clinicians, both at the bedside and in airway workshops. So today, could you explain to us some of the common sedation strategies that you use during a so-called awake fiber optic intubation? Thank you for this question, Jack, uh, because it gives me, in fact, the opportunity to start with a clarification that is very important to me. I would like to make a distinction between awake and spontaneous breathing intubation, where normally the term awake refers to those situations in which the high risk of impending loss of the airway and or the expected difficulty with tracheal intubation requires that the patient really is awake, able to cooperate, follow commands, and are also able to protect their airway. Like, you know, um, in this case, uh, a Ramsey 2 light minimal sedation is what uh, the level that one would want to reach. In these cases, topicalization of the airway is really key. Minimal, carefully titrated sedation may be provided only in selected situations and using medications and doses that pose a low risk of respiratory depression. Ketamine and dexmeridomidine and sometimes midazolam and fentanyl or remifentanil may be used. But uh, again, sedation only if absolutely necessary and at the lowest possible dosage. More in general, spontaneous breathing intubation refers to all of those situations in which sedation, always as an adjunct to topical anesthesia, can be titrated to a deeper level, like a moderate level, we would call it Ramsey 3 which can be achieved with the judicious use of the same medication that I mentioned earlier, but also with other sedatives of anesthetics, such as propofol, for example. Of those various techniques that you just described, which one is your preferred sedation uh, technique and why? My preferred technique is one that I feel is most likely to keep the patient spontaneously breathing so that I do not cut bridges. And uh, by this, I mean a technique that I can more easily abort if not successful. It relies on abundant topicalization of the airway with nebulized lidocaine. And if needed, the addition of a transtracheal block perform injecting two or three cc of lidocaine through the cricothyroid membrane. I find that the use of two anesthetic blocks combined is very helpful in in providing effective topical anesthesia of the oral, laryngeal, and tracheal mucosa. Nebulized lidocaine 4% generally provides a very effective block in the territory of the gossopharyngeal and superior laryngeal nerve, which includes the base of the tongue, pharynx, and the superior aspect of the vocal cords. Adding the transtracheal block provides additional anesthesia of the territory that receives sensory innervation by the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which includes the inferior aspect of the vocal cords and the trachea to the carina. 
As sedatives, I utilize almost exclusively dexmedidomidine and ketamine with the addition of just minimal doses in the form of boluses of midazolam and fentanyl, only as required by the ability of the patient to cooperate and taking into account the risk of airway obstruction always. I generally use fentanyl and not remifentanyl. If I have to use an opioid, they would have the advantage of being shorter acting than fentanyl to avoid combining two medications, dexmedidomidine and remifentanyl, that may produce intense bradycardia. Depending on the situation, I may also add small doses of other adjuvant medications, such as glycopyrrolate to reduce oral secretion and or oxymetazoline nasal spray to decrease chances of nosebleeds in nasal endoscopy-assisted intubations. So once you do that technique, as you described, if you notice the patient has inadequate sedation, what are the next steps you'll take to improve the situation? This depends on the situation. More topical anesthesia may be necessary as a first step, and when safe to do so, adding sedation in small increments may be helpful. In these cases of inadequate condition, I first try to understand what the issue is. Why is the patient not tolerating the procedure? For example, the intensity of a strong gag reflex may be reduced with more lidocaine than the patient may gargle, for example. Uh, Dexmeridomidine, administered in incremental doses five, uh, four, eight micrograms, may be helpful for an agitated patient that may be excessively restless and also maybe tachycardic. I prefer ketamine in increments of five, 10 milligram doses in patients that are very sensitive to dexmedidomidine-induced bradycardia. If I give ketamine, I may add a small dose of midazolam to blunt hallucinatory effects in delirium from ketamine. And a small dose of fentanyl may help blunting airway reflexes. Regardless of the medication, it is extremely important to proceed very slowly and to continuously reassess the sedation level. As I said before, not cutting bridges and making sure that the patient is safe at any time is the most important thing. Unfortunately, obviously aborting a procedure that is not being successful and waking the patient up is not always an option, such as in critical, emergent, and deteriorating situations. But, you know, it may be the safest option in some cases, especially, you know, of course, uh, in elective situation when feasible. And so when the patient is still maintaining their own airway pathogen, it may be best at that point to interrupt any airway management attempt after a couple of unsuccessful attempts by an experienced provider and consider a different approach altogether, for example, an awake tracheostomy. So once you've done these different sedation techniques, as you described, what are some of the common pitfalls that you like to look out for? Inadequate sedation, poor ability of the patient to cooperate, and Blood in the airway, most common with nasal intubations, but any airway lesion uh, in, in the presence of airway lesions uh, may start bleeding while managing the airway. And these are unfortunately relatively common complications. One of the most dangerous and insidious situations, in my opinion, is the accidental escalation of the level of sedation to a deep level that causes loss of airway patency. This is why it is critical, once again, to proceed very slowly and to be always mindful of the amount and also of the onset time of all the medications administered. Too much and or different drugs in a short time span may turn a talking, agitated patient 
that is breathing spontaneously and reacting vigorously to stimulation into an apneic unconscious, unconscious patient that may not be able to oxygenate and ventilate. And earlier you mentioned some other sedation techniques. Can you provide a little bit more details about these and when you might choose to use them? Other sedation techniques may rely mostly on the use of medications such as midazolam, fentanyl, and remifentanyl and propofol that we already mentioned. Uh, while all of these medications can be used safely in selected patients, I would reserve these techniques to situations at low risk of airway obstruction and very low risk of impossible intubation and impossible mass ventilation. A condition generally known as psycho cannot intubate, cannot oxygenate. Some clinicians report better control of coughing, airway reflexes, and hemodynamic stability with opioid-based sedation. Remifentanil is normally favored among the opioids because of the shortest onset and offset time compared to other opioids. However, recent studies have shown equal effectiveness of dexmedomidine and remifentanil in regard to those outcomes with better preservation of respiration and oxygenation with dexmedomidine. Additionally, dexmedomidine seems to have mild, mild antisalagogue characteristics, which is helpful during intubation. Comparing dexmedomidine with propofol for the outcome of airway obstruction, things seem to be more complicated than the comparison I just made between dexmedomidine and remifentanil. In fact, at comparable levels of sedation, pharyngeal collapse seems to occur at the same degree with the two drugs, propofol and dexmedomidine. However, these observations mostly come from studies in sleep endoscopy patients or supine volunteers, while I perform most of my fiber optic intubation with the patient in the beach chair position. Additionally, given that dexmedomidine is analgesic and propofol is not, in clinical scenarios in which sedation is used for a rather painful and stimulating procedures such as intubation, arguably the sedation level with dexmedomidine should, could be less than the sedation level needed to achieve, to achieve the same level of comfort with propofol. As a matter of fact, propofol is the preferred agent for sleep endoscopy, also because of the observation of the faster airway obstruction with propofol compared to dexmedomidine. Well, Dr. Carboloni, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. I mean, there's obviously a lot of really great sedation techniques available, and it's good to hear, at least from your expertise, why you may choose one over another. Thank you, Dr. Buckley.